songs of worship and for preparing our hearts so well for uh, the preaching of God's Word and the difficult task that we have before us this morning as we do cover a passage that, though familiar, is still very difficult to us. So we, we're grateful to you for leading us uh, so well in that. Um, our passage this morning is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 18, and we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 20. And the reason why it's so difficult is because, as you all know, this passage talks about church discipline. And we don't like talking about that often. It's something that's uncomfortable for us. But yet, this is what Christ commands for the church as we care for one another, as we relate to one another. And so even though it is difficult, we want to see what our Lord has uh, for us to understand and, and to live by as we look at this text. So uh, if you are there, Matthew 18, and we're looking at verse 15 to 20. Matthew records the words of Jesus as Jesus says here, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if, you, if, if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we need your help this morning. We need your help, and I need your help specifically because, Lord, when we come to texts like these where we don't want to do what's in them, it is very difficult. And yet, we understand that this is something that you have taught. This is something that Christ himself has given to the church as something that we ought to obey. And so, Father, as we, as we come to this text, we ask that you humble us, that you humble our hearts, not just so that we would do what you call us to do, but also that we would recognize where we stand before you and how without you, without your grace, without your love, we would be in a place that is outside of the church body. Were it not for your grace, we would be like those destined for wrath. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us great humility as we study this text. Humble our hearts and humble us under your mighty hand. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. During the last few weeks, we've had our annual opportunity to go through some of the nuances of our church's mission, vision, and values. We've looked at the priority of making disciples, whether it be evangelism or even making disciples within the church. We've also had a chance to see how us being a body, a body of believers, how we must be vitally involved in each other's lives. We, are, we meet together to be a, 
to be a vital part of Christ's witness to the world when we gather together. And this week, as we kind of continue on, when we look at church family life, we're going to talk about an aspect of the body that we don't like talking about too much, and that's our interpersonal relationships within the family of God. Specifically, what do we do when we have sin within the body? Unconfessed sin that is within the body. Now, I normally do not bring attention to the, ti- uh, to the title of my sermons, but I draw your attention to the, the title this morning because I've deliberately chosen an ambiguous, provocative title to, have, to, to get you to wonder what I'm talking about. Right? When you look at this, loving confrontation, do I mean that we all ought to have a, uh, all ought to have a love to confront one another? And that we should always constantly be in each other's face confronting one another for sin. Or am I saying that all confrontation that we do within the church, whenever we have to do it, should be done in love? Which one is it? Well, in truth, it's actually a bit of both. Aha, I got you. In general... The majority of us do not relish confrontation, right? We, we run away from confrontation if we don't have to have it. Given the choice, we would much rather be comfortable than we would having difficult conversations with other people, confronting them over their sins. If, in fact, their offenses really are sins rather than aspects of their character that annoy us. And after all, if someone really has sinned against us, wouldn't it be easier Simply, just easier to avoid the person with whom we have conflict than it would be to speak with them and work things out, right? It's always easier just to put it to the side, ignore it. Others of us, for whatever reason, we have an overdeveloped love for confrontation and we'll be more than willing to go toe-to-toe with other people as often as we feel like it's necessary with someone who we believe does not fit our picture of what a dignified believer in Jesus Christ ought to look like. Now, whether it be an underdeveloped or overdeveloped prioritization of confrontation in the church, being in either place is not in line with how we are taught within the scriptures of how to relate to the family of God, especially when it comes to sin. There is a tension that we have to hold. You can't be overzealous about it, but you can't be underzealous about it either. There's a tension that we have to hold. Before any of you think that I'm all about confrontation within the church, I believe that confrontation in the church is only valid. It's only valid so long as the intent of our confrontation is the loving restoration of the sinning believer to a right relationship with God and the church. If we're confronting out of vindictiveness or self-righteousness, our confrontation is not valid. But we cannot take my word for it, even if it sounds mostly right to what we've been taught in the church. Therefore, our hope this morning is to study what the Bible has to say about biblical confrontation, also known as discipline or church discipline, and come to a proper understanding of this vital aspect of church family life so we may honor our God in all aspects of our faith and practice, and we'll do so by studying three reasons why we as a church ought to be faithfully committed to practicing loving confrontation within the church body. Three reasons why we as a church 
ought to be faithfully committed to practicing loving confrontation within the church body. Now, the first reason that we ought to be faithfully committed to practicing loving confrontation within the church body is because we are commanded to confront. We are commanded to confront. Usually, whenever we refer to Matthew 18, we automatically associate it with church discipline, and rightly so. However, sometimes we forget the context in in which Jesus provides the instruction for what we now call church discipline. Jesus and his disciples were by the Sea of Galilee following Jesus' transfiguration and the casting out of a demon. And they had all sorts of questions for him regarding the kingdom of heaven. Specifically, how they can determine who is the greatest in the kingdom. And it is in this context that Jesus instructs his disciples. And he begins to teach them about how kingdom citizens ought to conduct themselves here on earth. And as he's teaching, he eventually addresses the issue of interpersonal relationships within the believing community. What do you do when there is sin, unconfessed sin, within the life of the believing community? And notice how Jesus begins here in verse 15. He says, if your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. For those of you who have the NASB, your your translations simply have, if your brother sins, followed by the command to go. However, some of you will have a note in your Bibles that say that later manuscripts record Jesus as saying, if your brothers sin against you. And that's, for those of you who have the ESV, that's what your Bible say, if your brother sins against you. And the reason why I bring up this textual difference is because some have taught that these principles of discipline, of confrontation within the church body, only applies to sins that have been, that have been committed against you personally. So if you've observed sin in someone else's life, if it hasn't been done against you, you don't have a right to go talk to them about it. Now, while that translation is possible, while it is possible for us to take this as only, person, uh, only confrontation if someone sins against you personally, the fact that it is only present in later manuscripts and doesn't really make sense when you look at the attitude with which we are to deal with sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, even if it's not committed against us personally, it causes us to lean more towards the translation where we're talking about if, if you observe a brother sinning in general. It doesn't necessarily have to be against you. Though it may seem like Jesus is calling us to call one another out on sin every single time one of us crosses the line, the implication here is not, is not that we become each other's consciences and personal Holy Spirit and confront someone every single time that they sin, the moment that they sin. But... That we come alongside someone who is stuck in continual, unconfessed sin. You know, at times, these sins are unconfessed in the lives of our brothers and sisters because they can't see it. And that's something that we don't always take into account. Sometimes they're unaware that they're caught in sin. And for that reason, that's why we go and we point it out to them humbly. But... There are also other times when our brother or sister is conscious in their sinful choices. They are in active rebellion against God. So that's why it is important for us, because we don't know which one is which, to confront. 
Now, while we still could rightly provide warning to someone who sins in the moment, Jesus is really talking here about patterns of unconfessed sin in the life of a fellow believer. And the generality of the scenario is instructive to us as well. Every single believer can be confronted over any sin that is unconfessed. It's not just sins that fit in the, oh, that's a big sin, or that's a small sin. It is any unconfessed sin in the life of a believer that we see, that's the kind of sin that we confront. As long as whatever our brother or sister is doing can be placed in the category of actual sin, confrontation must occur. Now, some of you might understandably squirm a little bit here because you don't like the idea of confrontation or you think that you might be out of line when you go confront someone. And so what we see here, though, is that Jesus doesn't give us the ability, there's not even an ability, to maneuver out of this command to confront. In Jesus' scenario, we have a fellow believer caught in sin, and Jesus says, go and show him his fault in private. That main verb is not show him his fault, but it is to go. It is a command to go. And as a command, this is a non-negotiable action that Jesus wants us to do when we see a pattern of unconfessed sin in the life of our fellow believer. Or even just a pattern of sin in the life of a fellow believer. As we go, though, we are to show our brother or sister their sin. This verb show can also be translated as reveal or expose, implying that the sin that we are confronting in the life of our fellow brother or sister is one that they are unaware that they are committing, and therefore they continue to commit these sins. Now, as we go... As we are going to our sinning brother or sister with the purpose of revealing sin to them, we are also told to reveal their sin to them in private. In the original language, this phrase in private is actually translated or is literally translated between you and him alone. So it would read, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. That might be awkwardly phrased, which is why they smooth it out a little bit in the translation. But the original language heavily emphasizes this idea of privacy. There's this desire to keep the, inner, the, the confrontation small. To keep the circle of, 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 of confrontation small at, uh, at this time. Because we want to give the one who's being confronted a chance to confess their sin before the Lord and to be restored to him and to us. It is done in private. It is done one-on-one out of love for the one who has committed sin. And this means, brothers and sisters, that any time that we have to go confront someone over their sin, even if you don't feel like it, your job, your responsibility to them is to go to them personally and to talk it out. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you don't want to do it. But that is what we are commanded to do. You are not, brothers and sisters, to go talk to somebody else and say, hey, this is what they did to me. Can you go talk to them about it? That is not at all the way that we're supposed to interact with one another. Right? But we are more comfortable with that because we don't have to deal with it ourselves. We don't have to get our hands dirty. Someone else can go do our dirty work for us. Brothers and sisters, that is not what Jesus is saying here. When he gives us the command to go and show the 
the sinning brother his fault in private, the implication of that command, go, is not necessarily just all of you go, but you personally go and confront the one who has sinned against you. Or that you've seen sin in their lives. And our desire is not is not to inordinately shame a sinning brother or sister over unconfessed sin. We don't want to shame them more than necessary. There is, a, there is an element of shame that should be there. Our society tells you that you should not feel shame. And I tell you, and Jesus tells you, that if you have sinned, if you've committed sin and you are responsible for it, you should feel shame for your sin. That sin is yours. That shame is yours. It belongs to you. But when you confess it to him and you repent of your sin, that shame no longer is yours. It is given to Christ. And then you're free. That's when you're free. So, the desire in confrontation is to provide appropriate shame to the sinning believers so that they will repent of their sin. And it's because of our love for them. So when someone comes up to you and says, hey, brother, hey, sister, may I humbly tell you something that I've been observing in your life? Do you agree with me? That should be shameful enough if we ourselves desire to honor our Lord. That should be shameful enough to cause us to repent right there and then. It should be over right there and then. And that's our desired result. That is our hope at the end of our humble confrontation. Is that the sinning believer hears what we have to say. They recognize the hidden sin that is in their lives. And they repent of their sin, resulting in what Jesus says is winning your brother. The idea of that phrase, have won your brother, is this idea of regaining something of value that was lost. And in this case, what was lost was the relationship between you and that brother or sister. In addition to the relationship that that brother or sister had with the Lord. And so, what we don't often understand is that when we sin against one another, our fellowship with this fellow believer has been disrupted because of their sin. And our hope in confronting them, is that the Holy Spirit will use our words in tandem with his work in their hearts to help them realize the weight of their sin and how that sin has disrupted our relationship with them and their relationship with the Lord. And if they repent of their sin, the relationship between believers, between those believers and between God is restored. Verse 15 rightly understood means that we are, we must confront those we observe in sin because we've been commanded to do so. And we do that with the purpose of winning them back to right relationship with ourselves and with God. So it's not to be done in a spirit of self-righteousness. It's not to be done because we're being vindictive. Because we want to make them suffer. We do it because of love. And we do it because we are commanded to do this by Christ himself. And so, knowing that this command comes from Christ himself, we understand that there is absolutely no wiggle room for us not to confront, even if we don't feel like it. Okay? Brothers, you have to get past that idea of, I don't feel like it. Okay? Because God told us to do it. However, 
However, because this could, you know, applied wrongly or overzealously, this could lead us to be conf- you know, to confront one another left and right, right, to be really ungracious and to get in people's face right away. So, what are some guidelines we can follow to make sure that we are not misapplying this command to confront? Well, one of the first things that we should do when we're trying to figure out whether we have the right to confront someone is to determine whether sin has actually been committed. Jesus begins his, his instruction by saying, if your brother sins, not if your brother annoys you or irritates you. Okay, you cannot practice church discipline on someone for chewing with their mouth open. We, I do not want to hear, pastor, we must discipline this person because they continue to chew with their mouth open. Okay, let's face it. None of us, even on our best days, are perfectly lovable. There's always some aspect of the way that we conduct ourselves, the way that we do things, that always is annoying to someone else. But even if what someone does is really annoying, if it's merely an annoyance and it is not sin, we cannot confront them with the purpose of discipline for something that's not sin. Now, some of you might be saying, no, but they know that I hate it and that's why they continue to do it. Therefore, they're sinning against me. Is that true? Married couples, is that true? You think, you think that your spouse continues to do something against you just to spite you. They know what you don't like and they continue to do it. And they're doing it because they want to get under your skin. Is that true though? And that's what we have to consider. That's what we have to think about when it comes to is, has sin actually been committed? We'll say yes, right? Because we love us and we don't, uh, we love them, but we love us and we love us more than we love them. And so that's why we'll say no, but they know and therefore they're doing it against us on purpose. But is that true? Is that their intent? And even if you're not married, right? When someone does something against you, is that their intent? Is their intent to cause you to, to cause you to stumble because they know that you don't like it and, and, and they're doing it to cause you to get a rise out of you? Is that true? You have to ask, has sin actually been committed or is it just my personal preference that's being violated right now? So we have to think about it. We have to stop and think. Is this sin or is this just a violation of my personal preferences? Secondly, we have to examine ourselves to make sure that we are not sinning against the one who has sinned and are disciplining them in our own sinfulness. Are you sinning as you are judging this other person for sin? Are you guilty of slander, of gossip, as you look at the other person's sin and you're desiring to confront them on it? And that's just one example. One of the most common objections to not confronting someone over their sin, and this is an argument that even unbelievers will appeal to when you, when you call them on something, is Matthew 7, 1, where Jesus says, Do not judge so that you will not be judged. You've heard that before. However, this is not, not an appropriate application of that verse in context because Jesus is calling for those who will judge to judge according to God's standards, not your own personal hypocritical standards. And he follows that up 
just a few verses later with that very, very common statement. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own? Why don't you notice the log that is in your own eye? What that illustration reminds us of is that we are, when we go to confront someone, we have to make sure that when we confront them, when we judge them for their sin, or their, yeah, for their sin, does our judgment agree with God's stated standards? Does it agree with his stated standards, or is it just some interpreta- our own imp- interpretation of what he has said? There is a difference. Yes? There is a difference between what God has said and what we go and make it say. And so what we want to do, what we want to make sure that we do, is that when we judge other people, that is according to God's word, not according to our own preferences or interpretation of God's standards. Lest we be guilty of sin ourselves. Now, if you've observed these first two, you've determined that sin has actually been committed, you've examined yourself for sin, and you, you think that you're clean, you're fine. Does that mean, therefore, that we get to go and confront now? Well, no, not just yet. We have one more thing to look at, and we have to determine whether the offense requires formal discipline. We have to ask ourselves, can this sin that's been committed be covered by love? Can this offense be dropped or made a non-confrontational issue? 1 Peter 4.8 tells us that we are to keep fervent in our love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Don't hear what Peter is not saying. Peter is not saying that some sins are acceptable before God and therefore can be ignored because of love. Okay, that is not love. That is not love. Letting someone do whatever they want to do as long as they're happy is not love. I don't care what the world tells you. I don't care what our society tells you. If you let someone continue on in their sin as long as they're happy, that is not loving towards them. That is not loving towards them. What Peter is saying is that not every sin requires for us to immediately go up to the offender to confront them. There are some sins that we can allow for the offender to deal with on their own before we go and confront them. If someone sins against us, or we see them sinning, and it's a one-time offense, or a very infrequent offense, perhaps there is something that is going on in their lives that we, cannot, that we did not consider, that we did not know about, that is causing them to respond sinfully at that time. It doesn't excuse their sin, but it gives us a little bit of a context when it comes to how do we care for this person? How do we understand what they just did to us? Because later, in a quiet moment, after everything has passed, when they look at the way that they've conducted their lives that day, perhaps the Lord will help them realize, hey, the way that I responded to this stressor was actually really sinful, and I need to repent of of it, and I need to go seek forgiveness from the one that I have offended. Sometimes we can do that on our own, can we not? You don't need someone always prodding you and saying, hey, you can't do that, you can't do that. That's just annoying. But if the sin 
that we've observed is significant enough or a repeated pattern in the offender's life, then we should, out of our love for that believer, desire to confront them over their sin in order to restore them to fellowship with us and God. While we can probably explore these guidelines more in depth, there's, there's always more. These are just some genu- general principles that we can consider as we determine whether we should confront someone over sin. Though we are commanded to confront one another over sin, patience and wisdom provide safeguards for us as we consider how to best love someone who may not be aware of a pattern of sin that is in their lives. But this leads us to the second reason why we ought to faith, be faithfully committed to practicing loving confrontation within the church, and that's because we love the confronted one. We love the confronted one. Verse 16. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. We would hope, we would hope that if we confront someone on a one-on-one basis, that they would be able to see their sin and and humbly admit it, humbly confess it, and repent and return to the Lord. We would hope that that would be it, that it would be the end of it. We don't have to deal with it anymore. We would hope that that would be the end. But Jesus acknowledges here that there will be times when our brother or sister will, not, will either not agree with our assessment, they will not agree with our confrontation, believing that we're overreacting, or perhaps, perhaps, They desire sin more than obedience to the Lord. And it is in cases like these that Jesus tells us that we are to proceed by confronting them again, but this time with one or two witnesses, two more witnesses. Now, before we go and explore that a little further, I do want to caution you all when it comes to progressing to the second stage of discipline. This stage doesn't necessarily apply to a situation where we've confronted a brother or sister over a sin in the past. They've genuinely repented, but then they still, at times, struggle here and there with their sin. We don't escalate to the second level of discipline just because someone is stumbling in their sin. Not necessarily, anyway. We don't always have to go there. For instance... If we've confronted another believer over unchecked sinful anger in their lives, and they've genuinely repented of it, and they're trying to do better, but here and there it leaks out, but then they repent of it again, you don't go stage two with them. You don't say, why do you refuse to listen to me? Why do you keep on getting angry? I'm going to church discipline you now. We don't do that for when people struggle to do what's right. As long as they're repenting of it, we don't escalate. Right? What, we talk, what we are talking about is unconfessed sin. A pattern of unconfessed sin. Now, when it comes to the example of anger, you know, that is a little more tricky, that is a little hairier, because some people, if they were confronted on their sinful anger, maybe they'll get angry less frequently, but their blow-ups are a lot larger, yes? 
it can increase in terms of severity. And that's another story. But what I'm saying is that we would not necessarily jump immediately to stage two discipline, to this next phase of discipline, if someone is merely struggling with it. If violence occurs because of it, then, then you have to have another conversation. Okay? But, and that's what makes it hairy. That's what makes it difficult. But this second stage of discipline is reserved for continual unrepentant sin in the life of a professing believer. Now, as Jesus tells us that we are to take one or two witnesses with us to confront this believer over their blatant, unconfessed sin, this is not... This is not an instance of a church police force going to intimidate another believer into doing what is, the, what is in accordance to the church's standard of morality. Okay, This is not that. If we're not supposed to go to our brother or sister in a spirit of self-righteousness or vindictiveness when we confront them one-on-one, we are definitely not doing that when it comes to other stages of church discipline. Our confrontation of them is driven by a love for our fellow believer who is deliberately choosing to live a life contrary to God's word. Love for a fellow believer does not mean that we leave them to their own devices and allow for them to continue in sin because we believe that the matter is between them and God. That is not love. Again, I say to you, that is not love. Allowing for someone just to continue to sin as long as they're happy is not love. God says in Leviticus 19.17, You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You may surely reprove your neighbor, but shall not incur sin because of him. What that means is that loving a sinning believer means that we leave them to their own business or we let them sort out their sin struggles if they're not even aware that they're struggling with sin. That is a big issue. And loving a sinning believer doesn't mean that as long as they're happy, who are we to stand in the way of their happiness? That is not true love for someone we know is not pleasing God and is marching proudly to their own spiritual shipwreck and perhaps even destruction in eternal hell. If we ignore them, and their sin, and allow for them to continue living in their sin without reproof, without correction. God calls that hate for them in our hearts. We cannot ignore unrepentant sin in the lives of our fellow believers, believing that it's a loving act towards them, because God doesn't see it that way. He sees it as hate, not love, toward their souls. God loves us too much. He loves us too much to allow for us to continue on in our sins. That's why you and I are saved. For those of us who believe, for those of us who've repented. The reason why we're saved is because God loves us too much to leave us to our own devices. And for that reason, he sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins. So that when we believe in him, we might be saved. If we love a sinning brother or sister who is a genuine brother or sister within the body, we ought to love them so much that we say, I am going to pull you back from spiritual shipwreck and eternal destruction because I love you. I love your soul so much that I will not let you continue in your sin. If you love them, you will not allow for them to continue to wreck their lives because of their sin. 
You will pull them back and you will say to them, no, stop. You are going the way of Satan. Return. If you love them, that's what you will do. You will not let them continue on in their sin. But you will call them back and you will say, no, you must do what is right before the Lord because he loves you. He died for you. And because of that, you ought to love him, not yourself, not your sin. He loves us too much to allow for us to march to hell with a smile on our faces. And we ought to lovingly reprove those who are sinning in our midst. Reproof of a sinning believer is always, always done with a loving concern for them in our hearts. And the reason why Jesus tells us to bring these witnesses is so that they can come alongside us. And so that they can also communicate love to this sinning believer. There's three reasons why he does that. There are three reasons why he does that. Why do we need one or two witnesses? Firstly, we need to verify that sin has actually been committed and that it is still, it is still not repented of. We need to see. We need to check both sides of the story. We need to see whether sin has actually been committed and if it's and if repentance is still missing. Secondly, the reason why we do that, the reason why we need witnesses, is to lovingly show that concern through the elevation of sin's seriousness. Again, if we're doing this out of love, if we are confronting out of love, and we bring two or three witnesses that also have an established relationship with the one who is unrepented of their sin, and we're coming alongside them and saying, we love you, stop! Will that not communicate to the one who is unrepentant love? It's because of our love that not just one of us is coming up to you now, but two or three of us are coming up to you now and telling you, please return to the Lord. Hopefully, the addition of these two people or two or three people approaching the one who is unrepentant will help them realize, oh, this is actually really bad. I need to repent. I need to return. The third reason is because we want to make sure that discipline was done rightly. We want to make sure that discipline was done rightly and that, and we want to confirm that no repentance is still there. That repentance is still not there. Notice, though, that Jesus, he doesn't specify who these believers are. Like, accompany the original confronter. So it doesn't mean that it has to be a church leader. But like I said, if there's an established relationship with the ones who accompany the one who originally confronted, it communicates even more so the love that we have for this unrepentant believer. We love you so much that we are willing to come out and confront you over your sin. And we call you back to a right relationship with us and with the Lord. And at this point of discipline, the circle of who knows about the unrepentant sin and confrontation is still small. Okay, it starts one-on-one, and then it goes to at most maybe two, three, four. 
But if repentance and restoration still doesn't happen, if it still doesn't occur, it is the loving responsibility, loving responsibility of those who know to tell the matter to the church. Verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. The hope in telling the church about the discipline process thus far in the life of our brother or sister is not to slander them. It's not to ruin their reputation, but it is to mobilize the entire church in love towards this believer to call them back from their sin. To call them to be restored to a right relationship with God and the rest of the body. This is the loving call of the church body. The body whom this unrepentant believer belongs to. Because we love them. And we desire for them to live in holiness. And to be with with us in our desire to please God. And as you can see. Though it is serious. This process is always, constantly driven by love for the one who refuses to repent of their sins. We're not trying, again, to, res- to destroy that person's reputation. But we are trying to collectively say as a church, we love you. And we love you so much that we are not going to allow for you to continue on in your sin. Please, please turn away from your sin. That puts you at odds with God and us and be restored to loving fellowship. If, however, the loving of appeal of the church does not cause our brother or sister to repent of their sins, it is our responsibility, our responsibility as a church to excommunicate them from the church. They are to be treated as a Gentile or a tax collector. To the Jewish mind, treating someone like they were a Gentile or a tax collector was to treat them as outsiders, as a person who's not a part of the community. But when Jesus says that you're supposed to treat this unrepentant believer as a Gentile and a tax collector, he's not telling us that it's acceptable for us to act in a prejudiced manner towards this unrepentant believer. He's not justifying that. He's not justifying prejudice. What he is saying is that This person who is being excommunicated, who is being kicked out of fellowship, should no longer be treated as a member of the family, but should be treated as an unbelieving, unrepentant person in our midst. Jesus calls for us to excommunicate, to emphasize the seriousness of this unrepentant believer's sin to them. And they need to understand that the way that they are conducting their lives is not pleasing to God. And until they repent of their sins, they are no longer welcome to enjoy fellowship with the church. They're no longer privileged to enjoy that fellowship. They are no longer to receive encouragement from the church body. They are no longer to receive comfort from the church body. Because that encouragement and that comfort is reserved only for those who are in the church body. It's only for those who are the Lord's. If the church must excommunicate a member, though, we are still to pray for them and have a loving concern for that sinning believer. Excommunication is not the end of the story. 
If we excommunicate someone, it's not just like, I don't even know who you are anymore. Who are you? No, we are to still have a loving disposition towards the one who has been excommunicated. We're still supposed to care for them, even if we don't provide encouragement or comfort to them. Any kind of contact that we have with the one who has been excommunicated is now initiated with the sole purpose, the sole purpose of calling him or her to repentance. That is it. You don't invite them to their birthday, to your birthday party. You don't invite them to go watch a movie. Any contact that you have with the one who is being excommunicated is to call them to repentance and repentance alone. Once that's done, you go. You are only calling that person to repentance. And you know what? They might respond in a hard-hearted way to you still. I don't care. If the only thing that you're going to talk to me about is, is repentance, then I'm not going to talk to you. That's okay. Because brothers and sisters, we, we excommunicate them to show them what they're missing in the body. We purposely put them out. So that they can see the seriousness of their sin. You don't get to have an, uh, the same relationship with me that you used to have until you repent of your sins. When you repent of your sins, we'll have that restored relationship. I will love you and I will care for you in the way that I did when, we, when, when you were a part of the body. But until then, our only relationship is me calling you to repentance. That's the only thing. Now, some people might try and go to another church to escape this, but, and, and they might try, right? And they, they, they probably can go to another church and never come back to the, to the church that they got excommunicated from. But the purpose of one church body excommunicating another is to show them they're in discipline, right? And they'll go to another church to try and receive. I mean, why do they go to church? If they're a sinning believer and they got excommunicated. They're going to the church because they know that they are no longer receiving the benefits of fellowship within this church body that they've been excommunicated from. And so they go try and find it from somewhere else. And if that church is worth its salt, if it is honoring the Lord, when that other person goes to to them and says, I want to be a member here, they should be calling us and saying, hey, is this person coming to us in good standing? And we will say, no, they are not. They've been excommunicated. They are under church discipline for X, Y, Z. Return them to us. And then we'll begin, we'll begin counseling. We'll begin trying to minister to them and calling them back to the Lord. But brothers and sisters, we do not allow for other people to go off in their sins and try and find comfort elsewhere. The reason why we church discipline is not because we hate them. It's not because we don't desire to love on them, but it's because we love them so much. We're saying, no, this is unacceptable. You cannot do this no longer. We call them to repentance until they repent. And if, if at that point, the Holy Spirit has caused that sinning believer to realize their sin, repent of it, and demonstrate the fruits that come with true repentance, then and only then are we as a church to welcome that believer back into loving fellowship and reaffirm our love for them. In 2 Corinthians 5.8, Paul instructs the Corinthian church to receive a formerly excommunicated member 
who repented of his sin back into the fellowship and to reaffirm love to him so that he would not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. We understand that if you've been church disciplined and it got to the stage where it was told to the church that you will feel awkward when you come back because you're wondering, you're wondering, will they receive me back? Our relationship was torn. It was broken. And will the members of the church body continue to look at me as if I was still in my unrepented sin? There will be that nervousness, that trepidation, even that shame that we feel. And brothers and sisters, whenever someone who has been church disciplined comes back and they've demonstrated that they've repented of their sins, we are to leave all of that in the past. We are to forgive them, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 8. We are to forgive them and we are to reaffirm our love for them so that they will not feel excessive sorrow. When they come back, they're back. They're family again. And when they come back, we love on them and we care for them just as we did before. But until repentance happens, until then, we are to continue to treat an unrepentant sinner as an unbeliever and only meet with them for the purpose of calling them to repent of their sins. I know it doesn't sound loving. probably feels unsettling to you. But brothers and sisters, when we escalate discipline against an unrepentant believer, we do so because of our love and deep concern for them. And it might seem to them and maybe to some of us as unloving because we're not letting them live the way that they want to live. But brothers and sisters, that is what love is. It desires the best for the person, even if they don't believe it. Am I right, parents? When you love your children, you desire the best for them, even if they don't see it. Even if they don't agree with you that ice cream for breakfast is not the best thing for their lives. Yes? because of our love for them that we desire what is best for them. And what's best for them is not for them to be happy, but what is best for them is to be in obedience to the word of God, to have a right relationship with him, and to be restored to fellowship with us. And though church discipline may seem like an archaic practice that is done out of hateful spite for those who refuse to obey the church, what we see from Jesus, Jesus himself, Jesus as described in the Bible is that we are to practice church discipline and we do it because it is one of the most loving actions that we can do for those who are trapped in their sin because we reveal to them that they are not currently living a life that pleases God and they are currently headed towards spiritual shipwreck. Now, while we want to make sure that we faithfully practice loving confrontation in the church because of our love for the confronted one, we also do so ultimately because we desire to obey God. We desire to obey God. Verse 18 says this, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if 
two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. These next verses are often seen as unrelated to Jesus' teaching on discipline because, well, it just seems unrelated to his teaching on discipline. But when we take a closer look at what these verses say, they actually confirm what Jesus has said. In verse 18, Jesus affirms the importance of his teaching on discipline by reminding his disciples of the authority that he had bestowed upon them in Matthew 16. When Jesus tells his disciples that whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven, he is not giving them the authority to change heaven based on the decisions that they make on earth. That is an unprecedented amount of authority that the church supposedly would have, which is what the Roman Catholics would tell you, which is what charismatic believers will tell you. They'll tell you that these, this verse, along with uh, what is found in Matthew 16, gives us the authority to change realities here on earth and in heaven. But that is unprecedented in terms of what God has actually given the church in terms of authority. God delegates authority to us, but he only delegates authority to us so long as we affirm what he is saying. God never puts himself in a position to make himself our personal genie. What we have here, when it says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose shall have been loosed in heaven, what we have here is God saying, whatever you do as a church, however you act, it is confirming what I have already said in heaven, what I've said in my word, shall have been bound, shall have been loosed. The shalls are in the future tense. And then been bound, been loosed, that's done in um, the perfect tense. And what that's saying is that what we are doing here, it's not that it's going to happen, it already has happened. This is already established fact in heaven. So what we are doing in our actions is confirming what God has already said. And so when Jesus reminds the disciples of this delegated authority that they have, he is saying to us that what we are doing here on earth is a confirmation of what God has already determined in heaven. Hence, these verbs that describe what has been done, what has already been done. By disciplining the rebellious believer who refuses to repent of their sin, even to the point of excommunication, Jesus reveals that the church is doing what God wills in the life of that believer. God does not desire for those who are his to live in bold-faced rebellion against him because he saved us to be free from our sins, not to be enslaved to our sins. And if, they, if we continue on in our sins, it could very well be an indicator that we're not saved to begin with. Even if the one who is unrepentant is truly a believer, their fellowship with God is broken due to their sin. Therefore, excommunication is God's designed means to help that believer realize their need to repent of their sin. 
Now, verses 19 to 20 have often been used to support the fact that God hears us in prayer meetings. Because as long as we gather with two or three believers and we invoke his name, he'll be there. Right? That's what you've heard. That's what people teach. Uh, and that's not at all what Jesus is saying. It is awkwardly placed. Because it doesn't seem, to, again, to fit within the context. But that context doesn't allow for us to understand it in that way. Jesus doesn't automatically decide to take a detour for two verses and then come back to the issue of forgiveness. And also, it doesn't make sense contextually, and it doesn't make sense theologically. You all know that God is omnipresent. He doesn't need two or three of us to go into a room and call on his name for him to be there. Yeah? He's already there. He doesn't need us to gather two or three together and be like, well, God, are you here now? Oh, good, you are. No, he's already there. He's already there. So this doesn't make sense contextually. What Jesus is saying here, though, in verses 19 to 20, is a reaffirmation of excommunication being a part of God's will if our fellow believer refuses to repent of their sin. If the witnesses mentioned in verse 16, even the rest of the church, agree that sin has been committed and that it continues to be practiced brazenly, and they are praying to God to work on the heart of the sinning believer who does not, will not repent of their sin, and we ask that he would work in their hearts to convict them of their sin, to bring them back if they are a believer, he will do it. And that's why, sorry, um, and that's why, that's why he says, if you ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. And then he also says, when you have those witnesses and they agree, I'm going to be in their midst. Which means that both God the Father and God the Son will be there to confirm what the church arrives at when it comes to the point of discipline. As the church strives to obedient to strives to be obedient to him, God will answer the prayers to do his will in the life of the one who is rebellious. He will work in their hearts. And if they are genuinely saved, they will eventually repent of their sins and return to him because he does not lose those who are his. He does not lose those who are his. Now, it might take a while. It might not happen right away. But it will happen if they are his. For those who are found eventually not to truly be his, we can be confirmed that he still will do his will in their lives. The seeds of the gospel are there. He still will convict them of their sin. If they repent, praise the Lord. It was his will to bring them back. But if they don't, that's still his will for them to continue on in their sin. But until we see what God is doing, the reason why church discipline exists, the reason why God backs church discipline and our decision to discipline someone is to show the one who is being disciplined that they are not living in a way that honors and pleases God. That they have no right to profess faith in Christ or even to be a part of the fellowship of Christ. And it helps them see that they must repent of their sins. And all all that they can expect in the future is interactions that continually call them to repentance. That is all for the purpose of evangelism. 
This morning, we've had the difficult task of examining what Jesus taught the church regarding unrepentant sins in the lives of his saints. And though it may be uncomfortable for us because we have to have these difficult conversations with the one who refuses to repent of their sins and humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, we must, we must lovingly confront them because Christ has commanded us to confront them. We confront them because we love them and we desire for them to be restored to a right relationship with God and with us. And ultimately, we do so because we desire ourselves to obey God to do what's right, to do what we've been commanded to do, even if it is uncomfortable, even if it is painful. If we are indeed God's family, then we as a part of the body are responsible to honor God in this particular application of interpersonal relationship in the body. And it is difficult. It is difficult To say and hear that church discipline is an extension of our church's value of us being together as a family. But we recognize, even though it is difficult, that this is what God is calling his family to do. He calls for us to love our family member who is estranged. To call them back because they're stuck in their sin. So brothers and sisters, I implore you to lovingly pursue those who you know who are in unrepentant sins so that they can be restored to us and to God. You know who that is in our midst, especially those of you who are members. You know who we must pursue in love. Brothers and sisters, we must resist also the temptation to be passive-aggressive towards one another when someone sins against you. And that's the small thing, but it's the small thing that eventually allows for the progression to get even bigger, and for the sin to get worse and to go bigger. We have to resist the temptation to be passive-aggressive, but we must go to them after we've checked ourselves and determined that sin has actually been committed and confront them so that we can be restored. Remember, this, the urgency and the priority that Jesus commanded us to have reconciled relationships in Matthew 5, 23 to 24. He says, if you're about to go to the altar, you're about to, to offer your offering to the Lord, and you realize that someone has something against you, what are you to do? Leave it there. Right? You leave it there, and you rush. You go immediately to go restore that relationship with that person. And then you come back, and then you worship. There is that urgency and priority of reconciliation that's there. And brothers and sisters, we cannot allow for sin and broken relationships to continue to dictate the way that we interact with one another. I know it's easier to do it that way, but that is not at all what the scriptures tell us to do. And this is not an exhortation that's born out of the influence of Western culture, because even Western culture doesn't like to deal with interpersonal relationships directly. 
This is the consistent teaching of the Lord our God when it comes to body life. And for this reason, the Apostle Paul, after he established the theological foundation of the church in, his, in the first half of his letter to the Ephesians, writes this. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been, with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If we are to honor our Lord, to walk in a manner that is worthy of our calling, we must be diligent to address interpersonal issues as they arise. If we see sin in the life of another believer and they continue on in that sin, we must deal with it. And it's us, the ones who sees it, that has to be responsible for it. You don't wait for somebody else. You do it yourself. You don't get someone else to fight your battle for you. You do it yourself. So that it doesn't escalate to the point of discipline. We don't want to let them go to continue on in their sin to the point where we actually have to do something more serious. We must be committed to practice to to practicing discipline out of love for one another because then and only then will we we be able to honor God and preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. God has called us to peace with our fellow brothers and sisters. And therefore, we have to deal with these interpersonal relationships, these struggles that we have. We don't want it to get to the point where more sin is tolerated and allowed and it becomes something where we actually have to go excommunicate. This is our call. This is our responsibility. It's tough. Believe me, I don't like doing it. Even preaching on this, didn't really want to do it, but I knew that I had to. Let's pray to the Lord for help, for his grace to do this task that he's called us to do. Oh, Father, what a difficult task you have laid before us. What a difficult calling you have given every single believer. We have to strive to deal with the sin that is in our lives and also in the lives that is, that is left unrecognized in the lives of our brothers and sisters. And Father, Help us, help us to genuinely love those who are in this body so that we will not give hearty approval to their sin, but rather in our love for them, we call them back to right relationship with you. We pray for much grace, for much humility, because the task before us is large. And it is difficult. We pray that you would help us to be gracious, to be humble, and to be loving as we diligently pursue in love those whom we have struggles with, those that we know are in sin. Help us to love them, to care for them by calling them back. And we pray that, Lord, you would have mercy upon their souls, that you would help them see their unconfessed sin, and how it has ruptured their relationship with you and with us. And Father, we pray that you would help them
desire out of a love for you to repent. And if there is any unconfessed sin in our lives, help us see it so that we also may have a right relationship with you. We're grateful for your word, O oh God. We pray that you help us to live it out faithfully. It's in your sons that we pray. Amen. Well, thank you so much for your attention. You're dismissed. Have a blessed week.